0: And turn with me in your Bibles to John 15 once again. Uh, while you're turning there, I did want to give an update um, to those of you who were uh, part of our church before um, the church called me a senior minister. I want to give you an update on, on the Sartells. I, I uh, flew to Memphis on Friday. I was not expecting to, but got a call that Janet, uh, you, you know that she's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer three years ago, and has, um, the Lord has been very gracious, given her uh, three years of good health, um, and it wasn't actually, the, the can- that cancer actually has not grown at her last scan, but uh, there's a blood clot, which is pretty common for pancreatic cancer, a blood clot uh, that went to her brain, and um, she was in the neuro ICU, um, unconscious, um, unresponsive for, um, on Thursday to Friday. And so I, I jumped on a plane on Friday to go uh, see her and be with John. And by the time I got off the plane on Friday, she had woken up. And so I got to visit with Janet and John. Uh, but uh, she's got a long way to go. Uh, specifically, you can pray, the left, her left side is paralyzed. Um, her speech is really difficult, and most importantly, swallowing, just that she can uh, work. She's working with physical therapy to learn to swallow again. So she's, she's got a long road to recovery. What that does mean for her treatment is that, um, that there'll, there'll be no more treatment of the cancer uh, she had pressed on with uh, chemotherapy for a long time and had battled that really well, and um, this effectively puts an end to that. So, and now we're just praying for uh, the rehab to go successful, that she can get back, get her movement back, um, be able to talk and swallow well, and uh, be able to spend these days uh, with her, with John and, and kids and grandkids. And uh, she, uh, the little bit she was able to talk to me, she was um, as feisty as ever and as confident in the Lord as ever. And uh, so she, she needs our prayers physically, but spiritually she is, she's doing really well. And uh, I would say the same for John, um, pray for him, obviously, as he loves on his wife, uh, but they're doing well, but, but I did tell them that I'd update you and that we would pray for them together. So let me read our passage and then I will, I will pray for her and then um, our sermon as well. This is 15, 18 through 25. Our Lord, first we come before you with heavy hearts for the Sartells. Um, as we read a passage about uh, unique uh, Christian suffering, we pray for her as she uh, suffers just the consequences that are that are global consequences of the fall—a world shot through with cancer and and unhealth, and disease, and sickness, and death. Uh, Lord, thank you that she has. Uh, been such an example to all of us of what it looks like for a saint to suffer in the Lord. Thank you for John and uh, what he has been for us as, it, as he confidently walks with his wife uh, through this trial. But Lord, they need our prayers, and so we pray for them. We pray that uh, specifically that you would restore Janet's uh, swallowing and speech and movement we pray that she would recover quickly and get out of the ICU quickly so that, Lord, she could enjoy uh, days with her family and friends. Lord, to pray that you would give John uh, grace and strength and comfort and peace. And Lord, the whole family, may the peace of Jesus Christ that transcends all understanding guard their hearts and their minds. May they be confident in the truths that they have proclaimed to so many. For so long, Lord, may those truths be real to them now. Lord, bless them, keep them, make your face to shine upon them and give, you, give them your peace. And now, Lord, we turn to your word as for years John faithfully stood in this very position at this very pulpit and preached your word. I pray that um, today as we gather again under your word, that you would teach us, not just our minds, but that you would change us transform us. Lord, we need this message. We in a culture that is increasingly facing uh, what our brothers and sisters have faced worldwide and throughout history, persecution and opposition from the world. Lord, we need this, and we need your promise. Lord, teach us that to be loved by you is worth being hated by the world. Help me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Since we began this series all the way back in chapter 13, it has essentially been a theme of love. Jesus has gathered his uh, disciples um, in the upper room last night, last word, and it's been words of love. The father's love for the son, the son's love for the father, the son's love for his people, and therefore the father's love for the people and the people's love for, it's just been a love affair for two chapters now in verse 18 is a pivotal transition to where Jesus moves away from this community of faith that he's been discipling and speaking of about with the language of love and he says now we need to consider what those outside this community think of us and immediately abruptly the language turns from love to hatred. Jesus has said, I love you. Jesus has invited his people to love him. Jesus has said the Trinity loves himself. Jesus has says, you've been invited to love the Trinity. And Now he immediately says, but you are hated. And that's where we turn our attention this morning. I want to, I've got a lot to say. I want to jump right in working with the text. We're gonna look at the hatred from the world, opposition from the world, persecution from the world, and I wanna look at it in two ways, expectation and explanation. We're gonna look at persecution's expectation and persecution's explanation. First, that it should be an expectation of God's people. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. At first glance, it seems that Jesus is saying that persecution may or may not come here, It's the if at the beginning of this section that makes us wonder, if the world hates you. But as his argument develops, you will quickly see that he doesn't view persecution as exceptional or even optional. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you sounds more definitive, doesn't it? Now, notice how he views the world. He he views the world through an all-or-nothing, in-or-out lens. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So it's this all-or-nothing, in-or-out, hated or loved. Now, when Jesus speaks of the world, and this is important, particularly in the Gospel of John, when Jesus speaks of the world, he isn't talking about the physical world. He isn't even talking necessarily about the people of this world. We we tend to do this us versus them dichotomy of the world and the things of this world are bad and and we're in some competition against the world or something. It's not what he's talking about. When he speaks of the world, he speaks of it as this um, fallen system of evil. He's talking about the fall is what he's talking about. And we know this because Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. Now, how can that be, since they are obviously still in the world? In fact, Jesus is going to tell them to go into every area of the world, engaging all peoples, all nations of the world. So how is it that they could simultaneously be called out of the world, yet called into the world? Well, Jesus sees a bigger picture, a greater story at play here, at work in the world, the story of Kingdoms in conflict with one another. Two systems, two ways, two orders, two realms that are diametrically opposed to one another. The ways of the world, which is the ways of the fall, and the ways of Jesus, which is the way of God's design. And the point is that Jesus has called us out of the former into the latter. You are now a citizen of God's kingdom, not of this World, But what that means, and purposes of our passage, is that because of that transition from one realm to the other, now the world where your former citizenship lies, now the world is opposed to you. Or as Jesus puts it, therefore the world hates you. So it's a given. It is a given. It's a non-negotiable. To be a follower of Jesus is to be hated by the world but will we be persecuted hated by the world okay but we persecuted continue on verse 20 remember the word that i said to you a servant is not greater than his master he's already said that to him once he's saying remember i said this already and this is how he applies it this time a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you again definitive language there right If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. As certain as the persecution of Jesus is the persecution of the followers of Jesus. A servant is not greater than the master. They persecuted the master. If you, the servants, expect no persecution, then you're acting like you're better than Jesus, and you're not. If Jesus was persecuted... You, his servants, will be persecuted. So, you will be hated. You will be persecuted. What should our expectations be from the world? Certain. Certain, not optional. Certain hatred. Certain persecution. And this raises a dilemma for us. If persecution is certain, then where's the persecution? We aren't being imprisoned, we aren't being killed. Paul says, we are being killed all the day long. We are are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. That's not my daily routine, sheep for the slaughter. In fact, we live in a country that constitutionally guarantees our right to practice our faith without the fear of persecution. So what does you will be hated you, they will persecute you, what does that mean for us? Well, what it means is that you will be hated and they will persecute you. Let us just remember that hatred and persecution come in many forms. One of my favorite things about Lewis, the screw tape letters in particular, you should go read it, is how he, as a Western, um, as a Western thinker, understands the, way, the, the, the ways of evil in Western culture and how it's so much more subtle and, and uh, non-overt. Persecution in modern Western society is there. It is only lurking behind the veneer of decency and tolerance. We are way too advanced, way too refined for those barbaric persecution practices of, of old. No, here it is the subtle yet insidious marginalization, the the steady drip of secularization that is slowly drowning our beliefs and practices. It is is found in the worldview discipleship of our youth that makes them embarrassed by their parents' and grandparents' convictions. It is the, the slow lulling to sleep of Christians to the enticing sounds of entertainment and prosperity in the Western world. Make no mistake, we are not the exception of persecution, okay? It's happening all around us. The fact that we don't see it happening is precisely why it is so effective. Far more effective than killing Christians. Far more effective than imprisoning Christians is the modern world's way. They will not kill us they will exile us into the oblivion of irrelevance. Or we just don't matter. Jesus is clear. The world hates us. You will be persecuted. And to this day, he is proven true. Why? The why question is the main argument of the passage. He's saying you will be persecuted, you will be hated, but the real thrust is explaining why that is. So let's move from expectation to explanation. The expectation is going to happen. Explanation, why? What's interesting about the way Jesus speaks about the world's hatred of you is that it actually has nothing to do with you. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That is to say... If you loved the world, the world would love you too. Which means it's not actually about you. It's not you the world hates. If you played their games, they'd love you. It's not you. It's your love. It's not about you. It's about the one you belong to. Verse 21 says it explicitly. He says, all these things they will do to you on account of my name. It is the name of Jesus that the world hates. If you don't bear his name, then the world will be fine with you. In fact, the world will love you and welcome you. But if you bear the name of Jesus, then the world will hate you and the world will persecute you. So Jesus is the ultimate explanation for our persecution. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. But why Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? What does the world have against Jesus anyway? Why does the world hate Jesus? Why do they kill Jesus? What's with Jesus? What's the problem with Jesus? I like him. Seems like everybody else should like him. Well, that's what he's ultimately explaining here. Why does the world hate Jesus? The rest of a passage is a bit confusing at first glance. But when you understand the argument that he's building, you understand what he's saying here, and you will understand why the world hates Jesus and therefore hates the followers of Jesus. Let's... Let's carefully follow along here and unpack what he's saying. Um, 21, okay, follow along. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because, so here he's going to explain why his name is hated, okay? Because they do not know him who sent me. Now that seems odd. They will persecute you because of my name because they don't know him who sent me. What is the connection there? This is his explanation. Verse 22, if if, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Uh, There's a better translation, and I think the ESV might even um, note it. Probably better to say they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Again, probably better to say they would not have sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Okay. Again, that's confusing. Let me, let me say, first of all, what that's not saying. He is not claiming that before he came, there was no sin or guilt in this world. That would go against everything the Bible teaches. We know that's not true. Of course, there was sin before Jesus came. But what is sin? Okay. Okay. At its core, sin is a rejection of God in order to be our own God. Sin is a hatred of God and a love of self. That was at the heart of Adam and Eve's sin and it remains at the heart of our sin to this day. A rejection of God. Okay, well the whole point that Jesus has been developing in the Upper Room Discourse is this connection between him and the Father. He's been talking about it thus far in love. He says... To love Jesus is to love the Father, and to be loved by Jesus is to be loved by the Father because the Father and I are one. It's not like love for God and love of God did not exist before Jesus. Of course they did. But Jesus is saying that he is the full and final revelation of God. So that henceforth, what does it mean to love God? Love Jesus. What does it mean to be loved by God? To be loved by Jesus. To put it more definitively, since the coming of God in Jesus, it is impossible to say you love God without loving Jesus, because the two are one. So Jesus has become the dividing line of whether you love God. Okay? Hold that paradigm that he's already taught us, but now consider it from the opposite angle, from the angle of hatred. He's moved away from love to the language of hate, but the principle is the same. To hate Jesus is to hate God. Notice how he slips that in between the two verses that are controversial and confusing. 22 and 24 are what confuse us. In between, you got 23, which says, whoever hates me hates my father also. So here's the point he's developing. Sin is a rejection of God. Well, now that God has come in the full and final revelation of, of the son, sin is now defined as the rejection of Jesus. He's the new dividing line. Sin is now defined as rejecting Jesus, not just the dividing of love for God, but hatred for God. So rejection of God's word in verse 22, I mean of Jesus' words in verse 22, where he says, I've come and I've spoken, but they've rejected me and Jesus' works in verse 24. They've rejected his works, all that he's done. So the rejection of Jesus' words and works now is the rejection of the words and works of God. The heart of sin has always been rejection of God, but now with the advent of God and Jesus, the heart of sin has become rejection of Jesus. And so he concludes it all with verse 25. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. What did they have against Jesus anyway? Why did they conspire to kill this man who was guilty of nothing? Perfect righteousness, perfect love, perfect mercy, perfect truth. What reason would they have to hate this man? Jesus says, no reason. No reason at all. They hated me without cause. Instead, it is their hatred of God that explains their hatred of Jesus. And that whole argument Jesus is using to explain ultimately the world's hatred of you. So follow the chain of his argument, okay? The chain of hatred and persecution, which is the main message of the passage. Why does the world hate those who love Jesus? Because the world hates Jesus. Okay, but why does the world hate Jesus? Because the world hates God. To follow Jesus is to officially align yourself with the God that has been rejected by this world. Therefore, hatred and persecution from this world is as certain as the fall. As long as this world is rebelling against God, this world will hate the followers of the one true God. This is why Christians throughout the ages can say the same thing as Jesus in 25. They hate me without cause. It's not about you, Christian, is the point. It's not about you. It's about who you love. And you happen to love the one whom the world hates. Therefore, you are hated for loving and for no other reason. Or are you? The last thing I want this sermon to do is baptize a, a self-righteous persecution complex <laughs> that I see, honestly, fairly prevalent among evangelicals, where supposed persecution becomes this badge of honor. We are hated and persecuted, and we say, well, that's because I'm a follower of Jesus. I counted a joy to suffer with Christ. Well, perhaps that's what's going on, but maybe that's not the case. Jesus was hated without cause because the reason they hated him is simply because they hate God. Take it down a level. Are you hated without cause? Because the only reason they hate you is because they hate Jesus, who, may, who was hated without cause because the only reason they hate Jesus is they hate God. That is to say, by way of application, why are you hated? What's the world got against you? Before we apply that question, perhaps I need to ask a, a different question. Maybe it's better to start with this. Are you hated? Does the world have something against you? If not, then something's wrong. The application of point one which is persecution's expectation, that persecution should be expected. The application of point one is that to follow Jesus is to be hated and persecuted, period. No exception. Are you? Or are you so so concerned with making Christianity contextualized and relevant and cool, and attractive, and swing the pendulum back from the obnoxious grandparents Christianity that you're so embarrassed by, and so you gotta make it cool again. So much so that the world just loves you as its own. Do not wear the acceptance of the world as a badge of honor. In fact, fear the acceptance of the world. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. If you are trying to show the world that Jesus can be palatable to their tastes, our passage is telling you that those efforts are in vain. If you want to give them a Jesus that they don't hate, then you're not giving them Jesus. You are giving them a caricature of Jesus that they do not have to hate. The world hates Jesus. He says it much in the passage. Without cause... But the world hates Jesus. So if your objective is try to get the world not to hate Jesus, then not only are you taking up a lost cause, you're taking up a cause that Jesus doesn't want you to take up. He doesn't need you as his PR manager. He needs you as his follower. He doesn't need you as a follower. He wants you as his follower. He wants you faithful. He's okay being hated by the world. This isn't surprising him. He expects hatred from the world, and so should you. So if nobody hates you, For following Jesus, then it means there is something deficient in your following of Jesus. That's application one. But other extreme. If you are hated, then I want you to consider point two, persecution's explanation. I want you to consider that as your challenge and application. If you are hated because of Jesus, make sure it's because of Jesus. Are you hated with cause or without cause? Because, as I said already, it's very easy for Christians to baptize the consequences of sinful actions with a persecution mindset. Why are you hated? It could be because you are faithfully following Jesus, but it could be because you're self righteous. It could be bigotry, it could be your sharp, critical tongue, it could be because you have to win every single argument. It could be a haughty, prideful spirit. It could be your slander and gossip. It could be your lack of empathy and mercy. It could be that people hate you with cause. You deserve for them to be mad at you. It is very easy for people to justify the consequences of their own simple actions by viewing it as persecution from the world. I was talking to someone recently about how they're not here, they're not in our fellowship. You don't know them. But I was talking to them, counseling them because recently because um, they, they move from community to community to community because they keep being rejected and persecuted by community. And their explanation was always persecution because they stand for truth. But I know this person, and I know people who know this person, and it has nothing to do with their stand for truth. It's that they're self-righteous with truth. They're a bully with truth. They're harsh and they're critical with truth. Which consequently means it's not truth because truth without love is not true. Sometimes it's not that you're being persecuted. Sometimes it's that you're being mean. Sometimes what we view as an opportunity to rejoice in persecution is in reality an opportunity to repent and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So point one causes us to ask, Are we even hated? Point two causes us to ask, why are we hated? And I'll let you dwell on those questions for your own application. I I, I would assume um, one of those sticks out to you more. But here's listen. Here's the harsh reality of both these applications, and it's the harsh reality of the passage. And Jesus is not shying away from it. You will be hated. If you belong to Jesus, you will be hated you will be persecuted. So question, who in their right mind wants to sign up for this? If you follow Jesus, you will be hated and persecuted. Why would you follow Jesus? And maybe if you are not a follower of Jesus, that's exactly what you're asking yourself right now. You know, well, you're making this thing look really appealing, preacher. Why would I do that? Why would you do that? And if you're a Christian, maybe you're thinking, why have I signed up for this? Who wants to sign up for hatred and persecution? I'll tell you who, those who want to sign up for the love of Jesus. There's a subtle but intentional phrase in this passage that is easy to miss. Return once more to verse 19 and then we're done. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now that phrase, love as its own, you've heard that phrase already in the discourse. In fact, We started the entire series with it. It's the first verse in chapter 13. It says this, 13.1. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. So John 15.19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. John 13.11, having loved his own who were in the world. Do you know the ultimate point of the discourse, ultimately? Choose your love. You will be loved as someone's own. Choose your love. Do you want the world to love you as its own? Or do you want Jesus to love you as his own? If you want the world to love you, that is very easy. Hate Jesus, and you will be dearly beloved of this world. But friends, oh, how empty and vain is the love of the world. How many times, how many times must the world fail to love us before we call it what it is, a despising, destructive lover, a cruel lover, a lover that will leave us devastated in the rubble of failed promises, empty, completely empty of love, or There is the love of Jesus. Unlike the world that only loves you if you love the world first, here's the love of Jesus that loves you while you are yet sinners, that dies for you while you hate him. Unlike the world that loves you with an empty, unsatisfying love, the love of Jesus will fill you to the uppermost and satisfy you to completeness. Unlike the world that loves you with a failing temporal love that cannot last, the love of Jesus is unfailing and eternal. The point of the passage is you will be hated by the world. The greater point is that you will be loved by Jesus. Choose your love. I hope you choose Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, may your love be enough to endure any and all suffering, hatred, persecution, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, help us to believe that your love is enough, that your love is worth it, and we pray you would use this holy sacrament, a reminder of your love, to do just that now in our hearts together. Fill us with your love, that we might leave here ready to endure any and all hatred. Through Jesus, our lover, we pray, amen.